What now? Where do we go from here? What now? Where do we go from here? Those are not only questions that you might be asking uh, for our church at Mountaintop. Those were actually the questions that the very first Christians, the very first church was asking. And we're going to kind of dig through that together. Hey, if you're new here and I haven't had a chance to introduce myself, my name is Carter here. I get to be one of the pastors here and I'm really honored to share with you today. And these questions are questions that the first church was resounding in their mind over and over. Jesus's 11 disciples and Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene and uh, some other women, Jesus's brothers, all total, there was about 120 of them gathered in a room in Jerusalem after Jesus had resurrected and had been literally taken up in the clouds. And they probably sat there together and said, hey, um, guys, what now? Where do we go from here? Like, what, what are we supposed to do now? Jesus had given them the great commission at the end of the book of Matthew. Matthew was one of Jesus's disciples and Jesus gives them what we call this great commission where Jesus says this. He, he says, uh, he gives them this, uh, this, this mission uh, to tell them what they're supposed to do. Go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and in Acts chapter 1, Jesus tells them one more thing. He says, hey, guys, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, right here in the city, in Judea, all surrounding us, in Samaria, the neighboring city, and then even to the ends of the earth. And they must have gone like, yeah! And then he left. And they probably said, what now? Where do we go from here? Like, well, what... Well, well, what are we supposed to do with that? And so that is the backdrop for Acts chapter 2, which we're going to be studying the whole chapter, Acts chapter 2, for the next three weeks as really a foundation for a vision for our church to answer those questions for us here at Mountaintop. What now? And where do we go from here? So if you are new to our church or you're relatively new in the last few weeks or maybe you started coming during all this craziness over the last six or seven months or you started tuning in uh, or maybe you've come back or maybe you've been here a long time and you, you're just really one of our core folks here, uh, I'm really grateful. This is such an important time. This is uh, such an important thing uh, to look at. And I think Acts 2 is the starting point because I just have this crazy idea that the best vision for our church is God's vision for the original church. Like there's no need for us to reinvent the wheel. The best vision for our church is God's vision for the original church. And Acts is such a unique book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John detail the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and his entire ministry. After the book of Acts, the New Testament is almost entirely letters written to churches, written to Christians. But Acts, who is written by Luke, the same author who wrote the Gospel of Luke, is the only book that details how the church came into being, 
how these followers of Jesus built what we call the church. And Acts chapter 2 is a remarkable and unique story unto itself. So I can't wait to share with you about it. Because I believe that it, it kind of unlocks some, some vision and some wisdom for where I believe that God is leading us as a church at, as a, at Mountaintop. So here's what you're going to hear. You're going to hear some, uh, you're gonna hear some strategies. You're going to hear some long-term goals, some goals for the next 10 years. You're going to hear a new vision statement. And I'm, I'm super excited to share those with you over the next three weeks that I think are really born in Acts chapter 2. And then for six weeks after that, we're going to talk about seven organizational values as a church that are going to be our values that we live into. Now, you're like, well, why are we going to do seven and six weeks? You'll figure it out when we get there. There's a reason because two of them always go together. So really, we've got nine weeks to, I believe, chart a new course. I love that song we were just, that, uh, that Ben led us in this morning, that God is doing something new. I've been here about a year as lead pastor at Mountaintop, and wow, what a year. What a year. We were going to do this earlier. We had a plan. Do you remember back in February when you made plans? Do you remember that? Plans were fun in February now. Now we just like, we don't know about, we, don't know, we never know if a plan is going to get canceled or changed or postponed, right? We had a plan. We were going to build this momentum toward a huge Easter. Right after Easter, we had a series called Base Camp that we were going to do to involve the whole church. And then in the spring, right after that, we were right before the summer, we were going to cast a vision, build momentum over the summer, and then have this awesome back-to-school launch and just get really fired up to go on this new vision. And then a global pandemic hit, and we sat around the table as staff and leaders, and we were trying to figure out how to do ministry for the next day, not the next decade. And so we had to push pause. And our world's not quite back to normal yet. Maybe it'll never be back to normal, and it's not back to the things the way they, they were. There's still many of you watching at home, but... We believe it's time for God to begin speaking into us and through us what he wants to do on the other side of this and going forward as who he's calling us to be as a church here at Mountaintop. So before we uh, tackle the what now and the where we go, let me ask you another question that I think is important for us to, to ask. Where have we been? I think if you don't know where you've been, you can't even begin to think about where you're going to go if you don't know who you've been. And some of this is going to be new to you or news to you. We're going to look at some data. So if you're not a data person, you're just, just like, it's going to be okay for about four minutes. We're going to talk about some data. If you love data, you're going to love data. But this data is going to tell us about some incredible opportunities we have. But some of this is also just hard for us to look at. I believe numbers are our friends and they help us make wise decisions for God's vision. So here's some data I want to show you. This is a chart that's going to come up on our big screen. This is our mountaintop, our average worship attendance from 2009 to 2020. And you can kind of tell from the chart that it's down and to the right. Uh, and if you're not a chart person, let me just spell it out this way. Our worship attendance declined by 33% from 2012 to 2019. You may not have known that. Maybe you did, 
Maybe you felt that. Maybe you came in the room. Maybe you've been here a decade and it felt like every year there was a few less people. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way. But here's, here's, the, here's what I want you to know. That's not really an indictment on Mountaintop, on us. Because what we were experiencing here at Mountaintop during that season, during the last decade, is something that the American church was also experiencing. Barna Research is one of the leading organizations that studies religious life in America. And just a few months ago, Barna Research put out some information that absolutely mirrors exactly what we were going through at Mountaintop. This is the American weekly church attendance from, 2000 and, from 1993 to 2020. And you can tell that around 2009, 2010, something started happening in America. So if you're sitting there and you're saying, it feels different. It feels different. It, our country feels different. Our community feels different. There is a reason it feels different because as our worship attendance declined, American church attendance declined. So here's what you need to know nationally what was happening. Since 2009, American church attendance has dropped from 48% to 29%. That means 10 years ago, five out of every 10 people you saw at the grocery store go to church, and today only three out of 10 go. Wow. The world's changed, right? Typically, the older you are, the more likely you are to attend church. One out of three baby boomers attend church. Only one out of four millennials. A millennial born after 1980-ish, 80, 82. If you're a Gen Xer like me, it's somewhere in between. But 75% of millennials are not currently attending church. We also saw a drop in what's called first-time guests over those, that series and that whole, that whole season as well for about a decade. And that means simply that less new people were coming in the door. That means that we're trending in the wrong direction. That means that the American church is trending in the wrong direction. And what it means is that it's not just stats and it's not just graphs and it's not just data. They're people that we're missing the opportunity to share the love and grace of Jesus Christ with. But I want to tell you something that I believe. I don't believe it has to be this way. I don't believe, I refuse to believe that the next decade has to be down and to the right. I believe that God wants to do something in the world. I believe that God wants to birth a movement in the United States. I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to descend on Birmingham to do an amazing work of God. And I say, why not us? Why not here? Why not in us, to us, and through us? But it is going to have to mean charting a fresh, new course if we're going to make a difference in our community and for Birmingham. Now, if you're depressed at those numbers and you're like, oh my gosh, with worship attendance declining and all that going down and that's the state of our country and how could God grow a church when attendance is growing? Listen, we're going to read a story about how God grew a church when there was zero church attendance. So if he has done that, he'll probably do okay with 30%. Right? I think he can do it and do it again. So I want to start by telling you our uh, vision statement. This is really how we accomplish our mission, uh, but it's, it's not our mission. Our mission is the same as always been. Over the last couple of months, sometimes people have asked me, like, has our mission changed? Like, Listen, 
This is our mission. It's the great commission that Jesus gave his disciples. I said it just a minute ago. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That is the mission of every church on planet Earth. And it really ought to never change. And some churches try to come up with a new way to say it, but that's really what it's all about. That will always be our mission. We are about making disciples in in the name of Jesus Christ, baptizing people. We're about teaching them to obey his teachings because we believe that's the best for their lives. But how we live out that mission must change in different contexts, in different centuries, in different decades, in different communities with the different gifts that we have here at Mountaintop. That's not a mission. That's a vision. So let me share with you our new vision or new purpose statement. This is it. We invite and equip people to follow Jesus. I want you to say that with me. One, two, three. We invite and equip people to follow Jesus. I don't know that you meant that, and I couldn't hear you at home. So let's try it one more time. We invite and equip people to follow Jesus. That's it. Now, No vision statement has ever made any organization or church ever grow. It's never never happened. Nobody's ever had a mission statement and slapped it on stationery or put it on a wall, and that was the trick, and that that was the silver bullet, and that made it happen. But it can clarify our direction. It can clarify where we're going and what we're going to do. And today, I want to start unpacking the really three pieces of that. And today, the the piece I want to unpack is that we invite people to follow Jesus. We invite. We are an inviting people. Over and over again, I have heard this about Mountaintop, and I love it. I love this about our church. And if you're new to our church, this is why you like our church already. Over and over again, we ask people to fill out. We, we sent out some, some questionnaires to our, to our church family, and so many of you sent them back. Our staff, our board of directors did them, our, our elders did them, and, and so many, just so many volunteers. And I hear that, but I hear this story all the time. I hear, um, I was going through a rough time, and I had not been in church in a while, and I came in, and they just loved me. Uh, my, our marriage was on the rocks, and we came in, and they healed my marriage, and they walked with us through that. Uh, we, I, I had just come in from a broken marriage, and nobody judged me, and they, they welcomed me into a group, and they loved me. I was called an addiction, but nobody looked at me funny. I didn't dress like everybody else, but nobody cared. I had not been in church in forever, but they invited me and welcomed me in. This inviting culture is a part of of who we are at Mountaintop, and this is a part of the best of what we do. And I believe God is calling us to lean into this invitational welcoming spirit. And in Acts chapter two, it starts off with an inviting environment, the likes of which the world had never seen before. So if you got your Bibles and you want to look along, you're studying along, you can open them there, open up your phones. If you don't have a hard copy Bible, Take one on the way out. We would love for you to do this. I'd, and if you're at home, I hope you got your Bibles there. You're open your phones. Let's read Acts 2 together for the next three weeks, okay? Read Acts 2 every single, every single week. It's, it's just one chapter. Let's read it together. We're going to start in Acts 2, chapter 1. I mean, Acts 2, verse, verse 1. It said, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together 
in one place. So what does this mean? When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. The all is several things there. The all is not just the apostles and the 120 that were gathered. They were there. But Pentecost meant that there was a crowd gathered in Jerusalem too. But Jews would not have called it Pentecost. They would have used the word Shavuot. That's the Hebrew word for weeks. Shavuot just means weeks. And Pentecost was the festival or feast of weeks. Sometimes they would call it a week of weeks. So how many days are in a week? Seven. So a week of weeks would be what? 49. There we go. We got some good, good math people I heard out there. And it was actually 49 plus 1. I'll tell you a little bit about that in a minute because the plus 1 was a, was a special day. What Pentecost commemorated, or Shavuot, the festival of weeks, commemorated the giving of the Torah or the law to Moses on Mount Sinai after the Passover. It was seven weeks after the second night of Passover when the Egyptians... Uh, finally release the Israelites and the Israelites finally escape Egyptian slavery into freedom and the Passover happens and 50 days later God gives the law to Moses, the Ten Commandments and, pass, and the Shavuot, the festival of weeks was the celebration of that. It was also the, the plus one was that next day, that 50th day, was the day to count the early summer grain and make a first fruits offering. As Greek became a more common and prominent language, it became not known necessarily as Shavuot or the Feast of Weeks. It was called Pentecost because a Pentagon has what? The five sides. So Pentecost simply means 50. Now, here's an interesting thing. So, Passover is typically around Easter. We, we do our Christian Easter still based off the Hebrew, the Jewish calendar for Passover. Passover drew a crowd to Jerusalem, but Pentecost always drew a bigger crowd. Guess why? The weather was better. Think about this year. Easter was on April 14th. Pentecost was on May 31st. Which one would you rather go on a trek with a donkey, right, <laughs> through the desert? Like, I think I'll not go through the cold. I think I'll wait till the springtime weather is a better traveling weather. So there was a larger crowd in Jerusalem during Pentecost or during Shavuot. So a crowd has gathered there. And so they're gathered, and then this happens. Suddenly, a sound like... This is key. Like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Luke is not saying that there was a wind that blew through the place and that fire came down. He's just saying, you, you remember English, like high school English, these are metaphors, right? It seemed that way. They were like this. He's using metaphors because something supernatural was happening and he, that he did not have the words to describe. It, it, was, it, was, like a, it was like a wind. That's the only way I could, that's the only way I could say it. it. It seemed like tongues of fire. I don't know what it was. He, he says the best language. Luke was a physician, very educated. He didn't have the words. And then this happened. They experienced something. All of them 
were filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. They didn't just believe in the Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit. And friends, I think Birmingham needs us to be a church that is filled with the Spirit. I think Birmingham needs us to be a church filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit because when they are filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit, they experience something. They begin to speak in languages that they had never spoken before in their entire lives. Now, some people, some people will say, was this like a prayer language or a prayer language? Was this speaking in tongues? Is that what that was talking about? And so there's some teaching in other parts of the New Testament that address speaking in tongues and what's that, what that's all about. But that doesn't seem to be what Luke is talking about here. And we're going to find out it's clear in just a minute. But he gives a clue by the word he uses for tongues, or maybe your translation says they begin to speak in other languages. This is the Greek word that he uses, dialectos. What word do you think we get from that? Dialects. They weren't speaking in some unintelligible language. They were speaking unbelievably, incredibly, in different dialects. In fact, it wasn't just one language. It was a whole bunch of them. Listen to what he writes next. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Why were there so many Jews from every nation under heaven? Because it was Shavuot, because it was Pentecost, and because it was good weather. And this is the biggest crowd that Jerusalem ever had. When they heard this sound, when they heard these languages being, talk, being spoken, a crowd came together in bewilderment. They were because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked. Aren't all these who were speaking Galileans? These are all the people that were with Jesus that come from Galilee. These are all these fishermen. There's that one tax collector. There's a couple other real, real serious guys in the bunch. That's his family. It's his mama. These are all Galilean people. How is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? And then Luke goes into excruciating detail the many different kinds of people who are hearing their own language. Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. They speak so everyone can understand. In, in fact, do you know the only language they don't speak? Their own. They speak Egyptian dialect. They speak Libyan dialect. They speak Cretan dialect. They speak every dialect under the sun except Galilean Hebrew. And our thinking as people of God, when we are filled with the Spirit, ought to always be that we don't speak our language, that we speak the language of the community. Because here's what I want to tell you about inviting, friends. If we're going to invite our neighbors, we need to speak their language. 
If we're going to invite our neighbors, we need to speak their language. We've got to speak what they speak. We've got to see the world how they see the world. We've got to understand their life, life the way they understand their lives because a crowd is drawn when people hear their language spoken. You are drawn when you hear your language spoken. When I was uh, in college, I had an incredible opportunity to go do a study abroad program. And I traveled all over Europe. Um, I look back now and think, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that at 20 years old by myself. I went to Italy and I went to Germany. I went to Switzerland. Um, I went to France. Incredible experience of a lifetime. And it never failed when I would be on a train or on a bus in those countries or traveling around. If I heard someone speaking English, man, you ever done that? You ever been in a foreign country? And you hear someone speaking English, and I was immediately drawn to them, and it didn't matter. They might have been from Ohio. They might have been from California. Maybe they were from Virginia. Sometimes they were from Australia or, or Great Britain. It, it didn't matter. If they could speak English, I just wanted to talk to them. I was drawn to them because we are drawn when people speak their language. Now, when I was in London, I was looking out for people who spoke redneck. And every once in a while, I'd hear somebody say, y'all or ain't, and I was like, that's my people. Hey, where are you from? And you just start talking, and they'd be like, well, we're from Mississippi, or we're from Tennessee, or, you know, we're from, yeah, that's great. You're speaking my language. We are drawn to people who speak our language. That's just the way it is. And so this is what happens next. All those people that are gathered, that are hearing things spoken in their language, this is what they say. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? It means that the gospel is meant to be translated into the language of the people. It means that the good news of Jesus Christ isn't just to be done in our language. It means that the gospel is for everyone. It means that when we, followers of Christ, are filled with the Spirit, we declare the wonders of God in ways that everyone can understand. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we declare the wonders of God in ways that everyone can understand. What good are the wonders of God if they are unintelligible to the world? Yes, I want to preach the gospel. I love it, man. I love the gospel. I love it. I love the good news of Jesus Christ. I love the truth that Jesus died for our sins. It gives us eternal life that he rose from the dead to defeat sin and death forever. And we can have eternal life with him and in us. I love the gospel. But the gospel won't do much good if we don't speak it in a way that is making sense to the people in our community. It won't make, it, it, we need to speak the language because this is how God birthed the church, this is how God spoke to the people. He drew a crowd by speaking their language, by declaring the wonders of God in ways that they could understand. So if we're going to do that, we got to know something. If we're going to invite our neighbors, we need to speak their language. And we got to know who our neighbors are. Turns out we got a whole bunch of them. There are 153,590 people within five miles of our church. You believe that? From where those of you that are here are sitting, if you're watching online, you probably know where we're at. 153,000 right there. Let me show you on the, screen, on the big screen a generation of breakdown of who they are. This will blow you away. 
120,564 of that 153,000 in our community were born after 1961. But this one will really get you. 53% were born after 1982. And by 2025, that number will be 58%. That means that 53% of the people within five miles of our church right now are 38 years old and younger. They are millennials who we already know are less likely to attend church. There's simply a lot of them. And they're raising children who don't attend church. So here's, here's this little way, the best way I can say it. There's all kinds of people in that 153,000. But if I could just boil it down to you this way, this is what the stats and the data tells us. An unchurched person in our community is most likely a 30 to 35-year-old parent. That's who they most likely are. Of course, yes, there are unchurched 60-year-olds. There are churched 30-year-olds. There are singles, and we want to reach all of them. But the biggest group in that, in that group of our neighbors is probably a 30 to 35-year-old parent raising children, trying to figure it out. And we got to talk about what their language is. Because their language, the next generation, and their language is much different than ours. Their music language is different. So if we play a song that you don't like, it probably wasn't in your music language. Their architectural and decor language is different. We want to make our facility look like the places that they like to go and want to go. You may tell you what their biggest language is? Their children, their family. They wanna know, like, how are you gonna help me raise my kids? How are you gonna help me raise my teenagers? Because none of us know what we're doing. We all need help. Do we have some answers? Do we want to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. But we want to meet them where they are at the things that they're concerned about because we believe that Jesus is the answer to the things they're concerned about, that God's word intersects with how to be a parent, with how to be a husband and wife, with how to find a husband and wife. We want to teach that. Let me tell you their, their, let me tell you their most favorite language. You may like it or not like it, but you can't deny it. It looks like this. That's what the inside of your phone looks like. Well, not really, but some guy or some gal that's writing code. Their language is digital. Their language is digital. Their language is social media. It's Facebook. It's Twitter. It's Instagram. It's TikTok. So you may be wondering, why spend all this time? Why spend all this time? Because... We want to declare the wonders of God in ways that make sense to them. And we just believe that God will do the same thing he did in Acts chapter 2. So let me tell you a couple things that we're going to do. Let me give you a couple, uh, a strategy and two big goals. One strategy is that we want to create environments for children, students, and adults in which everyone's welcome. We want to create worship environments, especially where people who haven't been in church in a long time are welcome. We want to create children's environments and student environments where everyone's welcomed. And I want to tell you something here. We're going to talk more about this next week. If we're going to do this, then we're going to have to improve our children's and student ministry spaces. And that's going to cost some money one day. I just think the next generation's worth it. I don't know about you. We want, to, we want to create environments where everyone is welcome. What would it look like for your serve team to make sure that you always have a spot available for a new person? 
What would it look for your small group to always have an empty chair and say, this, someone is always welcome in this seat. We are always thinking about a friend that could be in this seat. Aren't you glad that 120 followers of Jesus in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago didn't decide 120 was enough? Aren't you glad that they said, Lord, fill us with your spirit, and God used them to speak the languages of the people that reached those people who reached some more people who reached some more people who reached some more people who reached some people who reached you and me. And 2,000 years later, we're here. Who will be here 2,000 years after us because we decided to speak the languages of the people? So I want to give you some big, God-sized, crazy, audacious goals, Okay. We're going to reach our city with the gospel through 10,000 people in worship. I mean, there's 150,000 of them. I believe that God can do this. In fact, I only believe that God is the only one that can do this. This dream is big because God is big and his dreams are big and people need Jesus, so why not 10,000? And also, and you're going to find out why this number is so important in just a minute. If we're going to be for Birmingham, we want to partner with other churches. We are for all the other churches in Birmingham because there are some churches in Birmingham that speak other languages that we can't speak. And they need to reach the people that only they can reach. Some of them literally speak different languages and they need to reach people who speak other languages. Some of them speak different music languages. Some of them speak different uh, stylistic languages. Some of them speak all kinds of different worship languages. That's okay, we wanna partner with them because our heart is to see everyone in the magic city have a mansion built for them in the holy city. That's what we want, that's what we want. So here's another big goal we have, that by 2030, we want to partner with 100 local and diverse churches to pray over our city. We want to have 100 teammates in churches and say, we are in this together. Every time I drive by the BJCC, every time I drive by it, I just have this crazy idea. What if once a year we fill that thing up with 100 plus churches for a night of worship and prayer and praise to lift up the name of Jesus and send each other out and say, go speak your language to reach our city. And our prayer for those 100 churches, you know what our prayer for those 100 churches would be? There's about a million people in Birmingham, in the seven county area, our prayer for those churches would simply be this, we hope you reach 10,000 too, because if 100 of us will reach 10,000 people, we'll reach a million people in this city with the gospel of Jesus. So you guys, you do it a little different than us, and you speak a different language than us, and you've got different music than us, and you, you got pews instead of chairs, and you, you're in a warehouse, and you're in a sanctuary, but we don't care. We're on your team. We hope you reach 10,000, and we hope you reach 10,000 because we are in this thing together because if we're going to invite our neighbors, we need to speak their language, and we need all of us. Now I want to tell you, <clears throat> it's not a new idea. In fact, in fact, Dr. Bill Elder and his wife Linda had a vision and a dream 28 years ago along with some incredible volunteers like Nora Gilchrist to speak the language of the community because they had grown tired of churches only wanting to speak their language. And they knew that there were people who were hurting and who had been hurt by the church. So against all odds, they gathered together with a few others. It wasn't 120 people in an upper room in Jerusalem. 
It was 10 people in a living room to help start a place called Mountaintop. Some, verse 13, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. They said, y'all drunk. Some people won't get it. Some people are going to say, I can't believe your church plays a secular song in church. I can't believe you opened with Eddie Van Halen today. I can't believe your church did that. Some people are going to say, you guys are watering down the gospel. All you need, it's not true. Some people are going to say, you're becoming too worldly. It's not true. Do you know that when Pastor Bill started Mountaintop, there were people around Vestavia saying that it might be a cult? I'm so glad he didn't listen to what people said. I'm so glad that he didn't listen to people who made fun of him. I'm so glad that he didn't listen to people who called names because I'm here and you're here and we're here and Mountaintop is here and God's got greater plans and bigger plans and more plans. But if we are going to invite our neighbors, we need to speak their language. We need to speak their language. I figure I got about 50 years left on planet Earth. I'm 43, maybe I'll make it to 93. But I don't wanna do it, play in church. I wanna do it, be in the church for the sake of the world. I don't know about you. And Pastor Bill, Pastor Bill used to say it this way. His whole thing was this, his whole thing was this. Pastor Bill used to say, he was trying to turn fans into players. So why don't we play the game to win? Because brothers and sisters, it ain't no game. There are a million souls in Birmingham that need winning to Jesus. There are 150,000 within five miles of us who need to be one to Jesus. And I'll bet you've got one in your life that you want to see one to Jesus. So here's my invitation to you if you're a follower of Jesus. Let's get on the field and buckle our chin straps and lay it on the line and lay down our lives and do whatever it takes to declare the wonders of God, not in our language, but in theirs.